Hey, ladies. So good to see all of you here today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming and studying God's Word together. I am Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a privilege and it is a thrill for me to be here today studying God's Word with you. And isn't God amazing? I'm so grateful for his word. And what about the story of Exodus? Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying Exodus? Yeah, you know that very first week I said that we would each see something new in Exodus. Some story that we hadn't read before, some uh, verse we'd forgotten, some thought we hadn't had. How many of you have seen something new in this study of Exodus? Yeah, yeah, I have as well. And we are not finished yet. There are some exciting stories left to come. So hang in there with us for the next four weeks and let's finish strong. Today we're looking at chapters 18 and 19. And chapter 18 finishes up this first part of Exodus, which is the redemption of Israel. God, through Moses, delivering the children of Israel from slavery. He's taking them out of Egypt. We've seen Moses called by God. We've seen the powerful plagues. We've seen the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. We've seen God's great provision for the Israelites in the wilderness. And now with this story of Jethro in chapter 18, this part of Exodus is over. And in chapter 19, we begin the second half of Exodus. And that is God entering into a covenant relationship with Israel. The book of Exodus is about the Israelites going out and away from Egypt, and it's about them going with God to the promised land. It's redemption and it's relationship. So as I looked at these two chapters and studied them over this last um, few weeks, I uh, was thinking about them, and one word kept coming to mind as I read it, and that was listen. Listen, we see a lot of different people in these two chapters listening. Now listen is a very interesting word for me because I am a talker. I'm a talker Um, and I've been talking for a long time. My mom says that I began talking when I was seven months old. I could say flower and pretty. Okay, now my mom is an honest and really trustworthy gal and she's been telling this story. all my life that I can remember, but it's still a little hard to believe. But I do remember talking a lot as a kid. I have a brother that's a year younger than I am, and he didn't talk until he was five because I talked for him and I talked for me. So maybe I was talking twice as much as I should have. And I have this memory. I was probably about six to eight, somewhere in there, and my grandmother came to visit us. This was my mom's mom. We called her Granny. I was probably talking. So one day she says to me, and this is what I remember, she says, Debbie, how many ears do you have? And I said, two. And she said, well, how many mouths do you have? And I said, Granny, I just have one mouth. And she said, exactly, God wants you to listen twice as much as you talk. (laughs) Okay, I didn't even get it. 
I just thought, what? You know, that didn't make any sense. In my childish uh, youth, I just ran off. I didn't listen to that wisdom at all. But as I got older and grew up, I began to see the wisdom and what Granny had said, that we need to be listeners. There's a lot in scripture about listening. God says, listen to my son. And Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice. They listen to me. A lot about listening. And so when I was in college, I memorized James 1.19. I put it on your verse sheet because it's such a great verse. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear and slow to speak, quick to listen. And I began asking people, and I still do this in prayer groups, often you will hear me ask for prayer that I might be a good listener, that I would listen well to the Lord and that I would listen well to others. So today in these two chapters, let's see who's listening and to whom are they listening and what's their response. So let's get started. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, this whole chapter is about Jethro, who is the father-in-law of Moses. Verse 1 says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard, so right here, Jethro's listening, of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, just briefly, um, those names kind of remind us of Moses' past. He, uh, you remember, was living in the palace. He killed an Egyptian that was harming an Israelite, and he had to flee. And so for 40 years, he lived in Midian as a foreigner. And then he also, with the second son, realizes that it was God who spared him from Pharaoh because Pharaoh wanted to kill him after he had killed that Egyptian. And then verse 5 tells us that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So we see right off the bat, Jethro is listening. He's listening to reports of what God has done for Moses and Israel. And so a question comes to mind. How did Jethro hear these reports? Who's telling him this? You know, one thought is that Moses sent someone back to Jethro to give him this report. But another scenario, and I think this uh, could be very possible, there were traveling merchant caravans, um, officials and ambassadors going from one country to the other, even travelers going from one place to the next place. They all would be bringing stories of what had happened in Egypt. And we know that there were merchant caravans. You guys remember in Genesis, we saw Joseph's brothers. Um, they're standing there, a merchant caravan comes by, and they sell Joseph to that caravan. And that's how Joseph ended up in Egypt. One theologian said that intelligence gathering ability of ancient peoples should not be underestimated. News of significant events traveled quickly and thoroughly. They may not have had the internet or cell phones, but the ancient people were able to get the news across the land, one country to the next. We also know that God said to Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. 
all the earth. We've seen that the Israelites know their personal, relational Yahweh God. We've seen that the Egyptians now, um, they have learned about this real and powerful God of Israel. And so here we see that other peoples and nations have heard of what God has done for Israel, his people. So Jethro takes Zipporah and her sons back to Moses. Moses is uh, encamped in the wilderness. And so let's see what happens in verse six. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So in these two verses, I think we see great mutual respect and love for each other. Moses and Jethro love each other and respect each other. Jethro sends news ahead to um, Moses and says, I'm coming. Moses goes out to greet him. And they, he bows down before him out of respect. And then out of affection and love, they kiss each other and they hug each other. And then they say, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? And then they go in the tent. And I love verse 8. It says, then Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Can you imagine that? They go into the tent and once again we see Jethro is listening. And this time he's listening to Moses. Tell him firsthand all that the Lord had done in Egypt. He's telling him about the plagues. Um, Can you imagine the detail that he must have told him about each one of the plagues and Pharaoh's response and then God's response and then that final plague, how they took the blood of the unblemished lamb and they put it over the tops and the sides of the door and how that blood saved them from the death of their firstborn. And then how they left in haste when Pharaoh said, go. And how they got to the Red Sea. And wouldn't you love to be in the tent when Moses described what the parting of the Red Sea was like? I'm wondering how he described that water piled up on either side of them and how they ran through. And then I'm sure he told them about the song of praise that they sang to the Lord. And how Miriam and the women danced in praise before the Lord. And then how quickly the Israelites began grumbling and how God provided for them food and water and rest and victory over their enemy. How long do you think it took Moses to tell Jethro firsthand all these stories that we've been studying for the last 11 weeks? And what is Jethro's response as he listens to Moses? Verse nine, and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. 
So we see here that he rejoices in all that he's done. He praises God for all that he's done. And then we see a statement of belief. <clears throat> he's believing in Israel's God. That word there um, where it says, I believe in the Lord is greater than all gods. That is the Israelite name for God, Yahweh. He says, I believe in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And then he offers a burnt offering. He brings a sacrifice. He's worshiping God. And then he eats a meal with Aaron and the elders and Moses before God. And the name for God there is Elohim, that general universal name for God that a Gentile would use for with Israelites. Because Jethro was a Gentile. You remember that. It says he came from Midian. In fact, he was a priest of Midian. And the Midianites, they worshiped pagan gods. So at what point uh, Jethro believes in the God of Israel? We're not sure. Maybe it's when Moses was there for those 40 years. Maybe Moses told him the story of the burning bush, and that's when he believed. But we know for sure that right here, he believes in the Lord God of Israel. He is the one true and living God. And he worships him, he offers a sacrifice, and they eat a meal. And I don't want us to miss that great moment Jews and Gentile eating a meal together in the presence of God. That's what God wants. That's the whole reason for the Exodus, to bring Jews and Gentile together eating a meal in his presence. One author said, this is the climax of the Exodus, this meal, this meal. You know, we've seen lots of dramas, dramas come and go, but it's the constant presence of God at this meal that remains constant. And that's how it is in our life. We have dramas, dramas come, dramas go, but it's the meal that remains constant and that reminds us of God's constant presence with us always. All this is happening because Jethro is listening. And so I think the truth for us is listening to stories of God's mercy and power can lead to praise and faith and worship. So ladies, tell others your stories of God's goodness and mercy in your life. And listen to others tell you stories about God's power and grace, how he's worked in their lives. Are you listening? Are you listening? Let's go on to verse 13, and now it's the next day, and it says that Jethro, he must be watching Moses as Moses sits all day long, listening to the Israelites come to him uh, with their disputes, and he settles them. Now, we know that the Israelites were sort of grumbling, quarrelsome people, so lots of disputes, and he sits there all day long from morning till night. And at the end of the day, it says that Jethro says to him, and this is my paraphrase, Moses, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? And so Moses answers him in verse 15. He says, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. I'm thinking, whoa, God be with you, Jethro. You're the father-in-law, and you just said this to Moses. Did anybody else think, whoa, that is amazing? I guess because he was a father, his father-in-law. Obey my voice. Now, um, 
how many of you in here are mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, sister-in-laws? Some of you, yeah, or just mothers, sisters, um, just women. You know, before I was a mother-in-law, I would hear stories from young women about their mothers-in-law, and they were not good stories. And so I had determined early on, I prayed, Lord, help me not to be a bossy mother-in-law. Help me not to be a hard-to-get-along-with mother-in-law. Now, I'm very fortunate because um, I am crazy about my son-in-law and my daughter-in-law. They are um, outstanding people. They love their spouses. They love the Lord. They love their children. And amazingly, they love me. But even so, I have made mistakes. I've made mistakes. I've said things that I probably shouldn't have said. I've done things. And so this story of Jethro, the father-in-law, is very interesting to me. And I think we can learn something about Jethro and Moses that we can apply to our own lives. So let's look at this story. Let's look at verse 19. Once again, he says, Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you." So first thing I want us to remember is Jethro and Moses had great mutual respect and love for each other. I think that's a good place to start. Mutual respect and affection for one another. Moses knows that Jethro loves him and he cares about him and he recognizes that what Moses is doing is too much. It's going to wear him out. He can't do this alone. And then I think we see, uh, secondly, that Jethro has great wisdom and discernment in his assessment of the solution of this situation and the solution that he gives to Moses. We know that Jethro fears God and Proverbs 9:10 tells us that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he fears the Lord and so he has wisdom and he also has discernment I see here. Discernment means recognizing the more important from the less important. Nothing Moses was doing was wrong. It was just too much. And so Jethro says to him, you must prioritize the more important and delegate the less important. And what does he see as more important? First, Moses, you are to represent the people before God. That probably meant that he was to go to God in prayer, seeking direction for the Israelites. He was their leader. Secondly, he says, teaching them God's ways, his, his laws, how they are to live and behave. And then look for good men to place over groups. You know, divide up the people into groups so that they all have someone to go to to take their disputes to. And let these good leaders uh, settle those small disputes. And then if there's a great matter, they can take that to you. By the way, what were the qualifications for these uh, able men? First thing we see there, fear God. Fear God, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. They were to fear God, love God, obey him, follow God. They would have some wisdom. Um, also, that they were to be trustworthy. This is men of integrity, men that did what they say they were gonna do, men who lived like they uh, talked, they walked their talk. 
Third, incorruptible. They were not going to uh, be persuaded by bribes. They weren't gonna be prejudiced. They wouldn't give favors or take favors. And these are still good qualities to have in leaders today. And what would be the result of Jethro's plan? We see it in verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro wants Moses and the people to succeed. But he, and he recognizes that God is overall directing all. So with this plan, Moses will be strengthened and the people of Israel will flourish he wanted good things for Moses and the Israelites. And what's the response of Moses? Let's look, verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. There's my second wow. He listens to his father-in-law and he does all that he has says. What does that tell us about Moses? I think first of all, jumps out at me that Moses listened. He listened to everything Jethro said. He didn't interrupt him. He listened to everything. And Proverbs 18, 13 tells us this on your verse sheet. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. But Moses listened to everything that his father-in-law said before he said anything. And I think sometimes that's my problem. You know, I should be listening, but I'm thinking about what my response is gonna be because usually I wanna defend myself. I wanna defend my position and try to tell him how I'm right here. Not so with Moses. And I think part of that was because Moses was humble. He was humble and so he could listen to his father-in-law's advice. We know that he's humble. Um, Numbers 12.3 tells us this on your verse sheet. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's humility. And what does uh, Proverbs say about humility? 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Wisdom. And Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Moses was a humble man. He didn't think, I have to do it all. No one else can do this. You know, that is pride when we think that. You know, he was able to listen to him because humility gives us the ability to listen to godly counsel. I think uh, Moses realized that his father-in-law was wise and he was discerning. You know, sometimes... Um, we don't listen to godly advice because we're too busy trying to think of how we're right. And sometimes we don't um, listen because we're just so busy that we don't even look up and listen to the godly advice coming our way. But Moses listened. He was humble and he took the wise counsel and he did all that Jethro said. And the truth for us as mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, sister-in-laws, or mothers, daughters, just women in general, the truth is listening to godly counsel with a humble heart leads to wisdom. Are you listening? Are you listening? And then it says, uh, chapter 18 ends, verse 27, Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. And now we come to chapter 19. 
That part is over, that part um, of the Exodus, and now we're gonna look at this relationship that God is gonna enter into. So chapter 19, let's read verse one. It says, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, and I want to stop right there, because what God is going to say next is very, very important. In fact, some theologians think that these verses four through six are the most theologically significant verses in all of Exodus. So I want to give us, I want to stop and talk here a little bit about what's going on before we see what God says. Um, we see here that they, it's been three months since they left Egypt, and now they've come to Mount Sinai. And this is the mountain where Moses saw the burning bush. And God spoke to him, and God told him that when Moses brought the people out of Egypt, they would serve God, they would worship God on this mountain. Sometimes it's called Mount Horeb. And here they will camp for the next 11 months. The rest of the book of Exodus takes place right here at Mount Sinai. God has redeemed his people and now God will enter into a covenant relationship with the nation Israel right here. And so before we read that and talk about that covenant, I want us to review, kind of remember, the um, covenant promise that God made with Abraham. Now before you kind of glaze over and think, oh no, do we have to talk about covenants again? Just kind of hang in there with me because I think when we understand the covenants, we really understand the whole rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. So I wanna talk a minute about the Abrahamic covenant. This is where God um, made a promise to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, and he promises him land and descendants and blessing. And so we've seen the land, we've talked about the land, that is where they're headed. God is gonna take them to Canaan, that land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And the descendants, that's what's been going on in Egypt. You remember that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And it's Jacob and those 12 sons and their families that went to Egypt. And do you remember? They were 70. There were 70 of them. And now, after 400 years, God has blessed them with a population explosion. And from this 70, we now have 2 million plus. There's the descendants. And then the blessing that God um, said to Abraham. He said Abraham and his descendants will be blessed by God, and they would also be a blessing to all nations. Ultimately, that is a reference to Jesus Christ coming to earth to save us from our sin so that we might be in a relationship with him forever. This covenant with Abraham is unconditional. So let me uh, point that out again. This is very important. It is unconditional. That means it's all on God. It's all on God. God will keep this covenant promise no matter what. And now God is getting ready to enter into a covenant relationship with the nation, Israel. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant only lasted until Christ came to earth. And it will be a conditional covenant. 
It's a conditional covenant. That meant that God has a part and the Israelites will have a part. There is a condition to it. Okay, so let's look now that we've talked all that. Let's go back and look at what God is gonna say. Middle of verse three, God's saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Okay, I forgot to tell you that little part. You remember Jacob was renamed Israel by God. So all these descendants, all these people, these are the people of Israel. And he says here in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God begins by telling Moses, remind the Israelites of who I am and what I've done. What he did to the Egyptians, he was powerful. Um, He was patient Um, as they remember those plagues. Not one, not two, but 10 plagues. A lot to remember about his power and his patience. And then he says, I bore you on eagle's wings. What a great metaphor, what a great visual that is. He bore Israel on eagle's wings as he took them out into the wilderness. Now, I've not seen this, some of you may have, but I've read that the eagle, the parent eagle, goes into the nest, scoops up the young eagle, and flies out with the eagle, baby eagle on his wings. And as he flies around, he's teaching the baby eagle how to fly. And so the baby eagle takes off, and he flaps around, and he begins to fall, and the parent eagle swoops down underneath him and takes him on his wings and flies until he once again takes off. And as he falls, the parent eagle swoops on again until the eagle learns to fly. That's what God did for the nation Israel. He carried them on his wings. He was teaching them to trust him completely. Do you remember? And they didn't do too well. They were kind of falling. And God swoops in and takes them on his wings and he gives them food. And he gave them water. And he gave them victory with um, Amalek. And actually, they were learning to fly then. Remember, they were trusting God a little more in that victory. This is God always carrying them on his wings. And now he's brought them to this place. He's brought them to himself to be in a relationship with them. So let's look at that covenant relationship. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So right there, the very beginning, we see the condition. He says, you need to listen to my voice, obey my voice, keep my covenant. They were to listen and to respond in obedience, to keep his covenant. That was Israel's part, to listen obediently. And God's part, God says, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession You will be my special treasure. Out of all nations and all peoples, I choose you. God's saying, I am the sovereign God over all the universe, over all peoples and nations, and I choose you, Israel. You will be my treasure. Now, I love the word treasure. I think it's because when I was a very little girl, my great-grandmother called me her little treasure. Now, it wasn't because of anything I did. It was because I was the only great-granddaughter for many years. And so I was her little treasure. But even as a little girl, I knew treasure was valuable. It was worth a lot. And so when she would call me her little treasure, it gave me value. I felt valuable to her. 
How special Israel would feel to be called God's treasured possession. It gave them value. It gave them worth because God chose them, not because of anything they had done, but he chose them out of his sovereign grace and love. And we read that, Deuteronomy 7, 7 tells us this. Moses is telling the people, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. No, it was out of God's sovereign grace and his love that he chose Israel. Secondly, they were to be a kingdom of priests. All Israel was to have a priestly function. Now, the priests represented um, the Lord to the people and the people to the Lord. And God's saying that all Israel will show God to the Gentiles, to all other nations. The nations would see Israel's God was the one true and living God. And that following him and serving him was the way to great blessing. And then they would believe and want to follow the Lord God. Third thing, they were to be a holy nation. That means that they were to be set apart. Israel wasn't better than all the other nations, but they were different from all the other nations. They were to reflect God's distinctive character in their lives by following his laws so that God would be displayed to all the other nations. God is giving Israel a holy calling, a special purpose. And we see that in Deuteronomy 4 on your outline. This is, I mean, on your verse sheet. Um, Moses is telling the people of Israel they're on the banks of the Jordan River before they go into the promised land. And he's reminding them of everything that God has said. And here he tells them this, Deuteronomy 4, 6. Keep them and do them. That's referring to the law. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these stories, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then Moses goes on to say, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to us as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? They were to display God, his goodness, his love, and his righteousness to all other nations. And you know, in your homework, we looked at 1 Peter, that passage. Isn't it interesting that Peter tells us that as believers, we are called those very same things, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, people for his own possession. And he says we are to be distinctive too, we are to tell others about Jesus. We are to display Jesus to others. Tell them that we came. He brought us out of the darkness and into the light. We have a holy calling as well as believers in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, we see that Moses um, tells God uh, that the um, what has um, Moses tells the people what God has said to them, these words of love and blessing, and he tells them the conditions that they are to obey God, and he tells them of this special relationship and the blessings that will come from that, and then the people listen to God's words of love and blessing, and what is their response? They say, yes, 
Yes, they unanimously and enthusiastically and joyfully agree to follow God. They say, yes, we're all in. And the truth for us, listening to God's words of love can lead to joyfully following the Lord. Listening to God's words of love. Are you having trouble following God? Maybe you need to listen to his words of love. They're throughout scripture. And two places that I think we really hear it is Psalm 23 and Psalm 103. You might wanna go back and look at Psalm 23 and Psalm 103 and listen to his words of love. Are you listening? Are you listening? Let's go on in verse nine. Um, Moses tells God that the Israelites have agreed, and so in verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God now wants the Israelites to hear his voice. He wants them to listen to him speak to Moses. God is about to give the law to Moses. That's what's coming up in chapter 20. He's gonna give the law to Moses. And this is the law that the Israelites are to follow and obey as the people of God. So this law is important. It's important. The Israelites are God's people. And he is Yahweh, their personal relationship, relation, relational God, and he will be their king. He will be their king. And so these laws were important for many reasons. I'm only gonna give you two. One is because from the law, the law would reveal God. It would tell the people more about who God is um, and what he cares about. Second thing, the law was important because it would teach them how to worship God, how to live in relationship with him, and how to live with others. Now hear this, ladies. The law did not bring salvation. It was their faith, their believing God that brought salvation. That's the way it's always been. It's believing in God that brings salvation. One author said that the law was given to a redeemed people, not to redeem a people. The law was their constitution for the nation Israel. <clears throat> they were to be a people under the government of God. As they obeyed the law, blessing would come. That's what's attached to their obedience, blessing. And when they didn't obey God, they would lose out on blessing. Israel was to be a testimony once again to the whole world of how glorious it can be to live under God's just and loving rule. But we're gonna see in just a couple chapters that Israel has great difficulty um, obeying and following God. And God knows this. He knows that they are going to have trouble. He knows that they have uh, overestimated their ability to obey him, mainly because they've underestimated their sinfulness. And they've underestimated God's holiness. So he wants to speak to them. He wants them to hear his voice. And before that, he's gonna give them some special preparations to do. <clears throat> and these preparations, they would help them realize that um, they are sinful people and that God is a holy God. So Moses tells the people, clean up, wash your clothes, get ready to listen to, the, to God. And these preparations, um, they would point out the importance of this occasion. 
the outer preparations emphasize the inner attitude the Israelites were to have before God. Now, it kind of reminds me of a bride as she gets ready on her wedding day. Maybe you all thought of this too. She does her hair, she washes it, does it up, it looks beautiful. She puts on her makeup, she's gorgeous. Then she puts on that outstanding white gown. All of these outer preparations are for that inner attitude of love that she has for that groom at the end of the aisle. And it also emphasizes that willingness to commit to him to be his bride for the rest of their lives. And the Lord also gives them a couple other preparations. And so let's look at that in verse uh, 12. He says, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is because God is gonna come on the mountain and the mountain is going to be holy. Then it says, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses up to the edge of the mountain after Moses has put up kind of this fence uh, around it. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and he consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. So he's kind of tacked in here this third um, preparation which was abstain from sexual intimacy. Now that's not because that's bad. On the contrary, God is the one who ordained sexual intimacy for a man and a woman in marriage. Um, He's saying don't get distracted from this special occasion. Stay focused on what is about to happen happen, hearing the voice of God, listening to God. And then let's see what happens, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Can you imagine this picture? Can you imagine yourself at the foot of the mountain with that thunder and that lightning? Um, Have you ever heard thunder so close and so loud that your house kind of shakes? You know, maybe it was the other night. Have you seen lightning that uh, goes off and it's so close to you that it blinds you for a second? That's what was happening. Thunder and lightning so much that the mountain was trembling. And of course, The people are trembling. I think I might have fallen to my knees if I had been there to see the smoke and the fire, to see God descend from heaven to the top of Mount Sinai. God wanted the people to never forget this moment. He wanted it impressed on their minds forever, the awesome glory and power and majesty of their holy living God. He is awesome and he's coming down from heaven to enter into a relationship with them. But God in his mercy calls Moses up one more time. By the way, has anybody um, counted how many times Moses went up the mountain and down the mountain and up the mountain and down the mountain? I think it's like six or seven times. And that's because Moses was the mediator for the people to God and for God to the people. 
And so in 21, um, we see God calls Moses up once again to tell them, do not come near the mountain. You know, tell the priests. And Moses is like, hey, we, we get it. We've already done that. We've taught. And he says, no, remind everyone, even the, res- <clears throat> even the priests, respect the Lord. Do not get too close to the mountain. God wants a relationship with his people, but God is also holy. He's holy. In fact, one author I read said he was dangerously holy. I've thought about that phrase a lot these past two weeks. Dangerously holy. I think that means that God's saying do not take this relationship for granted and do not take the Lord God for granted. So verse 25 tells us Moses went down to the people and he told them, So the stage is set for God to speak the Ten Commandments to Moses as the Israelites listen to God's words. And I think everyone is ready. I think everybody understands this truth and it's truth for us as well. Listening well to our holy God requires reverence and an obedient response. We're to have reverence. And we're to respond obediently to God as we listen. So what about listening to God today? Well, first of all, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. No, that ended with Christ coming to earth when Christ ushers in the new covenant. He ushered in the new covenant. He did that by shedding his blood on the cross. He was the sinless, perfect sacrifice. And his shed blood would pay the penalty for our sin all sin for all time so that we might be in a relationship with a holy God forever. It was his blood shed that was the new covenant. Jesus says that in Luke twenty two twenty. It's not on your verse sheet, but you may have heard this when you take communion because Jesus says this at the last supper, that this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. And in the Old Testament, Jeremiah talked about this new covenant. He was a prophet, and he said this to the Israelites right before they were going into captivity again into Babylon. This was about seven, eight hundred years from the time of this Mount Sinai. So this is what Jeremiah says, the words of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is a reference of the Holy Spirit living within us when Jesus ushers in this new covenant. Jesus descended from David, descended from Judah, son of Jacob. He was the uh, fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. He brought in the new covenant. And Hebrews 9.15 tells us, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus Christ is our mediator, and we can draw near to God. We read that in Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Christ is our mediator. We can draw near to God. But also remember, ladies, that 
God today is the same God that was on Mount Sinai. Revere him, respect him, be in awe of the glorious, majestic, holy, awesome God and take joy in his love for you and keep on listening to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are majestic and holy and glorious and you love us. We're so grateful. Father, give us ears that listen well to you and give us um, obedient responses to what we hear you say to us. We love you, Lord. I just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.